Thank you so much for showing up today. And um, every morning at eight, Kathy does the daily pause meditation and hope you can show up for that. My Venmo information is Dharma Punks NYC. Everything I do, the teaching and counseling is provided or supported entirely by your donations. I don't ever charge for anything I do. So um, thanks for your support. And the uh, PayPal button is on the Dharma Punks NYC website and the podcast page. So thanks. <clears throat> um, today, I thought I'd give a little talk maintaining safety in relationships. And this came up because um, as part of my Buddhist pastoral counseling, which is kind of very similar to, um, related to providing therapeutic support for people, but very frequently I get asked by uh, individuals to also meet with either a romantic partner or a parent. Why well, don't really offer uh, couples counseling per se? I've been, I've wound up doing it over the last eighteen years, and at any given time, I'll be working with a few couples. It's not something that I particularly, I, I generally encourage people to see couples therapists, but sometimes anyway, I do wind up providing pastoral support for couples. And um, so to provide service that is in any way uh, useful, I very much not only use Buddhist tools, but some of the contemporary insights of major figures in that landscape, such as um, not just Alan Shore, interpersonal neurobiology, Dan Siegel, but also the giants in the field of attachment-based uh, coupling uh, couples therapy, such as the wonderful Sue Johnson of emotion-focused therapies and Stan Tatkin, PACT, P-A-C-T, as well as calling some of the insights of John Gottman and um, and others. So um, tonight I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the foundations of um, uh, how contemporary insights into interpersonal neurobiology can help us actually uh, create safe relationships, relationships that thrive, relationships where we learn how to um, mitigate conflicts. And so I will talk a little bit about attachment, but it's not going to be an attachment theory-based talk in the sense that I'm not going to drill down into uh, various attachment styles per se, but I will start by noting that it is an innate biological process that we are impelled to establish reliable attachments or connections with others. That at first starts with our caregivers, our parents, moves on to peers and friends, siblings perhaps, 
and then eventually romantic partners, uh, perhaps mentors, and even in life, of course, a therapist. And um, so this drive to develop sustained, reliable connections is driven by evolutionary directives. Human beings have uh, pretty huge brains, which means we have big skulls. And so we're born early in development when our heads are still small enough to pass through the birth canal, which means as infants, we're helpless for far longer than any other primate or mammal. Um, children really require years and years and years of protection and care and guidance before they'll be able to thrive on their own. So to survive required bonding with caregivers for long durations. And because of that, we have very significant portions in our brains that uh, incline us to connect with others, especially the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex amongst others regions. And we have, of course, bonding hormones, um, oxytocin, and uh, as well as serotonin and other neurotransmitters that incline us towards uh, maintaining interpersonal bonds, connections, attachments. It's also worth noting that our species survived because we can socialize, because we can bond with others. We didn't have shells or claws. We can't fly or burrow holes. So the way we survived was through safety and numbers. And so as individuals, any inability to sustain relationships would re result in uh, death. So uh, for us, it's very, very important to, uh, we only feel safe when we are connected. Um, and that's basically because that's how we survived. That's how our species thrived. And when we have a secure sense that people are available to us as resources as, uh, that will help regulate our emotions and provide a place to go when we're overwhelmed, it uh, helps us develop the confidence to explore the world. Um, we do require an ongoing sense of support is available to us, that people will comfort us and soothe us if we become overwhelmed or if we become emotionally distressed. <clears throat> and our sense of security in the world is based on memories culled from the tens of thousands of interactions as we adapted to our families and cultures. So the most influential of these events are based on emotional unconscious memories we're not capable of pointing to them but they're there unconsciously culled from tens of thousands of interactions starting from nine months of age and most influentially until around two and a half or three years of age this sort of core attachment phase now if during these early periods especially but throughout childhood, if attention is available and soothing, we'll feel safe enough to explore our world, build new relationships, because we know, again, that there's people who will take care of us. 
But if attention isn't reliably available, if our caregivers are not always, are at times neglectful, disinterested, or if their attention is overwhelming, sometimes parents can be rageful or exceedingly fearful or depressed or uh, manic. And so that overwhelming kind of attention can result as well in an insecure child, by which I mean a child that's weighted down and encumbered by the need to maintain attention that's suitable. The child just can't rely on it. The child has to actively do things to get any kind of support. So if the child is regularly uh, unreliably attended to, it will become anxiously preoccupied. It'll uh, not be able to pay attention to others. It'll have to constantly maintain vigilance over its parents. On the other hand, if the child is overwhelmed, it might start disengaging and seeking distance to dimin diminish the amount of attention. So over the course of childhood, the ways we uh, receive attention, whether we have to work for it or whether it's just given to us, whether it whether we can be relaxed about it or have to stay uh, engaged, um, turns into lasting implicit behaviors. Implicit behaviors are behaviors that we don't, they're just automatic. They're not consciously driven. They're just part of our automatic behaviors. They're um, reactions. Um, so if someone, for example, starts to sense that a partner or a friend or a, a coworker is becoming disengaged and disinterested as we talk, we might become, we might talk faster. We might become more dramatic in our statements. We might start gesticulating more, or we might, on the other hand, just uh, become sullen and give up. Um, we might become angry. And all of these are these predilections or these tendencies are based on the earliest survival techniques that we that helped us adapt to our cultures and parents in childhood these behaviors are generalized responses that we bring from us into childhood into adult life and they're there in all of our interactions with others but especially in core attachments, people that we rely on, people that we go to for emotional support, people that we um, live with or turn to for care. And of course, the more emotionally wounding the memories from childhood, the more they will leave deeply etched, deeply influential memories that will turn into deeply uh, influential impulses. One of the strongest is if a child feels frightened of its caregiver or scared, it will dissociate and freeze. It will shut down. And this survival reaction can become overly uh, sensitive in adult life, just as the 
uh, impulse to become emotionally dysregulated if we feel, if we anticipate abandonment. And so, of course, the way we react to uh, how others interact with us be, is very fast. And we'll talk a little bit more about it. It's very automatic behaviors. Um, if we're insecure in our early attachment, we'll over-rely on what's called self-soothing and self-stimulating behaviors. Those are auto-regulation, which means we won't turn to others over time if we feel distressed. We'll um, rely on uh, games or TV shows or food to regulate our emotions or cognitions, thoughts, fantasies to regulate our emotions. Um, and really this comes as a lasting impediment to emotional well-being because all human beings are co-regulation first species. We are primed by evolution to first when we feel distressed, lonely, bored, angry, frustrated, upset, to turn to others, to disclose our internal states to others, to help be soothed. We are not inclined, we were not set up, our brains were not uh, essentially wired to check out from connection and seek a, a game or a TV show or, a, or food or uh to just get lost in fantasies uh that unfortunately leads to on the one hand it uh, it um reduces the amount of social interactions um insecure children can actually develop amazing imaginations as a result of this like turning away from others from support they can develop terrific fantasies, uh, which is why so many uh, people who grew up in insecure childhoods wind up to be amazing artists. But on the other hand, uh, auto-regulation and early neglect or, or early engulfment is also associated with feelings of core shame. There's something about me that's not lovable are not good enough. And that's why so many amazing artists who have incredible imaginations and creativity also can be exceedingly depressed and actually uh, be suicidal or despairing. So um, auto-regulation, relying on, on self-soothing and self-stimulating rather than learning to constantly seek out others and express our, our internal states, our feelings, our impulses, our thoughts, leads to a great sense of being alone in the world. And we wind up feeling more and more unique. And unfortunately, some children will even learn that um, abusive situations are better than no attention whatsoever because if their childhood they spiraled between neglect and uh, and uh, rageful or abusive parents, they'll choose the scary because at least it's uh, it feels less vulnerable in some way to get any kind of attention. So 
one thing I'd like to say is that as mammals, we have lightning fast systems to spot the threat cues of other people. We're social species, and therefore, all of the emotional, the important emotional experiences, well, most most of the important emotional experiences are interpersonal. Um, the sense that, oh, I'm, uh, that someone else might be turning uh, critical or losing interest or might be um, disengaging uh, will create in me or in all mammals a threat response. And it's not something that we are conscious of. It's a process that uh, Porges calls neuroception. Unconscious regions of the brain, like the brain stem and the amygdala and uh, uh, the fusiform gyrus are are reading other people's body language, their their facial expression, their whether they're making full eye contact, if there are even subtle changes of a furrowed brow or an inpatient exhalation, uh, the subtlest roll of the eye, the subtlest shift away can activate in us a loss of safety. Um and lead to a, a swift activation of our sympathetic nervous system. We become aroused. We'll start breathing faster. Our muscles will tense. We'll start uh, having repetitive, increasingly dysregulated emotions. It will. It is so easy for human beings to become threatened because... Uh, so much of our safety depends on bonds with others, but at the same time, any lapse of a, of attention or shifts in uh, the way people look or or their bodies orient towards us can lead to these these lightning fast shifts in our autonomic nervous system. Kahneman, in many in his book Thinking Fast and Slow, which won the Nobel Prize, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky said that, you know, broke down cognition into fast versus slow. Fast processes are impulsive; they're primitive; they're automatic; they're survival based; they're based on early uh, regions of the brain. You know, the brainstem, the amygdala, the cerebellum, the other regions of the midbrain being activated. They're inexpensive in terms of the amount of calories they require, and but they make a lot of mistakes. They're error prone. That's why we jump uh, in on a hike when we see a stick, mistaking it for a snake, or while why if our parent uh, a partner walks up to us when we thought we were alone and says hello we might jump it's because the fast threat detection systems of the brain are guiding our behavior and these fast systems <coughs> are active when we are in any way stressed um they work well when we're in repetitive, familiar situations. At work, people can rely on their fast processes because if you've developed a lot of expertise, you can simply trust your gut and go with your first response. 
On the other hand, we also have very slow processes that are largely cognitive, top-down. Um, they're based on inhibiting our fast impulses. These are far more precise. They really recognize what's going on and correct errors, especially errors about other people. When we see that we've mistakenly assumed someone is uh, criticizing us, that's when we're engaging in slow um processing but it's very expensive with with calorie demands it, you choose up glutamate and choose up um uh, uh dopamine and um <coughs> it's it can, it's only available slow thinking is only available to us when we feel really really safe the moment we're under any stress or threat, we're going to go back into fast processes, which are mistake-prone, survival-based, me-first, uh, screw everyone else, uh, and constantly just defensive fight-flight. Ironically, when we most need to be thinking uh, using slow processes, when we most need to be precise and accurate and be able to listen, without reacting is when it's sometimes most difficult when we're in any form of conflict with an attachment figure. So the rest of the talk is going to be about how to establish safety so that we can engage in precise, slower, careful, engaging, bonding activities. It's very important when there's any conflict or any unresolved issues to at first never ambush a partner. But if we realize that there's some degree of activation in us to set up a mutually agreed time, but never just launch in, even if we feel enraged or we feel abandoned, it's really important to say, um, if someone's ambushed us to say, I'm sure it's important, but I need, but not now. I need to be able to, you know, set myself up I need to for listening and never be ambushed. Always say, I'm sure this is important. Let's find a time for this. If it looks like it's going to be critical or conflictual, or in any way a difficult conversation, make a pact never to just launch in, but always to ask first. Um, and you'll see why in a second. Um, it's also important never to go in with a list of demands, but it's essential to check first if our body is in a safe state, if our bellies are relaxed, if we are exhaling slowly. This is basic mindfulness practice. Open up our chest, arms, make sure that we can are in a state where we're not moving too fast, I, titrate, moving slower taken safety cues from our environment because if we don't feel safe we won't be able to listen and nothing positive will happen in a conversation and then we also need to devote full attention to our partner to watch to see if they are in a safe place because if they're not 
if they are not safe, if they're not secure, you will never be able to persuade them about anything. Someone who doesn't feel safe can never be persuaded into anything. It's hard enough to change or to get through to another human being, but especially when someone doesn't feel safe, when someone feels threatened, they may agree to do something, but they will it will no way really lead to any significant change. They will simply be agreeing to get out of the conversation. And then most likely, everything will, will return right back to the way it is without any resolution. So it's important to make sure that both we and them are safe. Again, that means our bodies relaxed, our bellies are soft, we're exhaling slowly, someone is, you know, is in an open space, is not hunched over, not disconnected, not uh, looking down at the ground, but people are looking forward or up, are in a space where they are clearly open and receptive. In Buddhist mindfulness, this is external practice of mindfulness, studying the detail of people's bodies, scanning their bodies, their vocal tones, noting, if you can, what their emotional state is. Again, if your partner isn't secure, there's no way you'll be able to persuade or convince them of anything. All their resources will be focused on protecting themselves. And it's important to remember that even the slightest shift in body posture or attention can activate a significant shift in a person's autonomic nervous system. You've seen that in your own experience where suddenly we've, you know, if you go, for example, to meet someone for the first time uh, or you're meeting new people and they, the difference between a smile and a sudden faded disinterest, a sudden shift away in body orientation, a sudden shift in tone of voice can really create in us a deep sense of uncertainty. It's a powerful signal that we read. And if we lose someone else's eye contact, so it's essential when we are engaging with others to be aware of just how consequential these subtle shifts and micro expressions can be and to just relax and stay oriented. If we start not paying attention and listening in our minds, guaranteed they'll pick it up. There's no way to start getting lost in thought without another human being sensing it. They might not sense it at first cognitively, but they'll, they'll know unconsciously and it will shift their entire autonomic nervous state. They'll suddenly become more emotionally activated or they will become uh, disengaged themselves. The vulnerability will be cut out and again, the connection will be lost. So it's essential to pause and leave space to not step on each other's words and to listen to what the other person really wants and respond to what they really 
or I mean, what they really need, what the need they're being expressed is, rather than any truth claim. So if someone's saying, you know, uh, I, I feel you haven't been uh, responding to my messages, or it feels like you haven't been responding to my messages, the worst way to reply is go, what do you mean? I responded to your last message or your last four messages. It doesn't matter if you think that what they're saying, the truth claim, the facticity claim is wrong. Focus on what the need is. Clearly in that situation, the need is that they're not feeling responded to. And that's the only thing really to take away, not it as, but but I have been, but you know, you don't respond to my text. All of that doesn't help bonding at all. It doesn't create safety. Just listening. Okay, I hear that. It doesn't mean we have to even necessarily do anything. It just means we hear the need and we can repeat it back. Okay, I hear that you're not feeling responded to. In line with that, I really encourage people not to make fact claims, but simply to say, uh, and not use you words, but we words. When we were in the car, there was a conflict between us. I felt not heard, rather than when you were in the car and you were yelling at me because I gave you the wrong, you said I gave you the wrong directions. Put aside the fact claims and just go to the situation and the feeling. Because ultimately, what we most need as human beings is simply to have our internal states be known. That's the core of attachment with another human being. It's vital to never interrupt and as much as possible to repeat back what we've heard before we engage it ever in any defense of ourselves. When someone else feels heard, it deflates the uh, intensity of the conflict. And um, a, a couple of last few points. Um, uh, as I noted, uh, paying full attention, any getting lost in thought, preparing how we're going to rebut what we're going to say, or even just as a kind of punishment, uh, what Gottman calls stonewalling, just, you know, completely focusing attention elsewhere. It'll be picked off, picked up, and almost certainly it'll lead to just a giving up on attachment from a partner, or it'll lead to up uh, dysregulation and, and higher emotion dysregulation. Lastly, I do think it's really important to use soothing connection if it's possible, taking someone's hand, saying something reassuring, we're in this together, I care about you, uh, you know, you're important to me. Any, you know, any kind of uh, conversation that really emphasizes how important the attachment is, is a really healthy thing to do. And finally, the most 
a reparative device that establishes safety is being willing to to apologize for any errors that we've made, even if deep down inside we believe that our partner has been making more, has been more and more burdensome or difficult, no matter how much we feel that um, uh, the fault belongs to someone else, the simple uh, offering of, uh, you know, I... I didn't really have your side when we were we were in public, or I could have been more attentive, or I didn't. I realize I didn't um, uh, connect uh, as quickly as I could have. Any acknowledgement, again, even if we feel that there's so many uh, um, challenges on the other end of the relationship any acknowledgement goes so far to create a sense of mutuality and safety i'd like to now lead us on a mindfulness meditation where we can both one uh establish feelings of safety in ourselves through uh both the body the breath and safety visualizations and then also we can practice a little bit of external mindfulness so uh, at this point find a really comfortable seated position and i encourage you at this point you don't it's sometimes healthy or helpful just to turn the camera away from you you don't want to be uh on screen while you meditate it will make you self-conscious and that's not what we want so meditate away from the screen so that you don't you don't have to feel seen uh you can just relax and what i'm going to encourage is uh closing your eyes if that's the way you like to meditate if not uh you can leave your eyes open but try to look um at something close by rather than allowing your attention to wander about the room so rest your gaze on something that's settled a plant or a window if if you're going to keep your eyes open So let's bring the attention to some soothing sensation in the body, if you can find one. Whether it's the breath or an area of your body that just feels very settled, spacious, relaxed. Just land in a place that's comfortable if there's no really comfortable 
spot, find the most neutral If we immediately jump into part of our experience that feels tight, contracted, it will not be, the practice will not feel like a refuge, like a source of ease and comfort. If no part of the body feels safe at first or relaxed or comfortable, then just listen to the sounds arising and passing. Be aware of the external sensations of the body and the layer of the skin muscles, contact sensation with seating, or if you're lying down with your back. And when you feel so inclined, just take a Survey starting with the feet moving up the body, noticing if there's any muscles that just feel needlessly taut that you can influence into releasing. Sometimes the buttocks, the thigh muscles, Releasing any habitual clenching in the toes, moving up to the hands, making sure that they're just fully released, not fidgeting or held and tight, grasping states, and then softening the belly, really releasing the belly, just allow the belly to expand. Rotating the shoulders up and back and then dropping them so that the arms really fall away from the ears, and if you can really create a nice amount of space for the chest cavity so that it's really, there's a lot of room for the breath. Releasing any clenching in the jaw. If it's available, a subtle, serene expression 
on the mouth. Breathing into the eyes so that the eyes are not fidgeting or twitching behind the closed eyelids. And see if you could imagine very gently massaging your forehead so that any tightness holding contraction of those micro-muscles are released. And then bring awareness to the movement of the inhalation and exhalation in your body. For some, it's most apparent as air enters and leaves the tip of the nostril. I prefer personally the feeling of breath, expanding the inhalation, expanding the belly, and then as the breath energy moves into the body, it moves up and expands the chest, and then as we exhale, the expansion releases and subsides, and then the energy moves down the torso back to the belly, which then releases after the initial expansion. So it's like a wave of water arriving to shore and then drifting away. And as you watch or observe just the movements of the breath in your body, see if you can incline the breath, the movement of the waves in and out to move slightly slower. Especially don't cut off the exhalations, the energy being released as we breathe out. Just allow for a very full, long exhalation. And even the pause between the waves of the breath each exhalation as it's followed by this slightly longer pause before the next inhalation begins. Just try to cultivate a breath that's synonymous with your body when you feel most relaxed and at home in the world.
Now to further instill a sense of safety, see if you can visualize a place in the world where you feel most relaxed and at home and uh, where you just thinking of it or is most associated with a time where you can really let go of all of your concerns and can move slower and can relax. If it's possible to visualize, visualize yourself having traveled to this safe place and putting down any bags that you've had to carry and just going to a really comfortable chair or mat or bed or hammock or spot that you can just relax and just try to incline your body to attain that same feeling right now as you would feel by that warm beach or that cool summer evening or that place in a park by a river or any place that you yearn for.
And finally, external mindfulness practice for those of you who feel confident in visualizing. If not, just stay in your meditation, developing ease and safety. But if you can visualize a partner or someone who's important to you, and first conjure up an image of a time or an example of what they look like when you feel most distant from them, most disconnected, most at odds. And if that's available, see if you can just take stock of not so much what they do, but what is the underlying state of their body? From all of these interactions you've had, what do you sense occurs physically that signals when they're no longer fully present or engaged or when they feel threatened? Is it an expression on their face? In their shoulders? Is it associated with them looking down or away or an ex uh, a cold, emotionless expression? If anything comes to mind, just make a note that these are some of the signs that someone is not in a state where we can get anything accomplished. That before we can communicate, we need to achieve with them another state, another psychobiological state. And then if you can, if you can recall an image of what it's like when your partner, friend, family member, coworker is available, is attentive, is present, how do you know that from their body? Obviously, partially, it's just from the sense of being listened to, eye contact. But what else comes to mind as a cue that you're safe to proceed?
And finally, if you have any clarity on what are the signs of this important person being emotionally unavailable versus being available, what is it we haven't tried? What is it we could lean into as a way to help them feel safe so that we can really communicate? How can we restore them? What haven't we explored? And so at this time, um, we'll bring our meditation to a close. So whenever you feel ready, you can return your attention to whatever screen you've been watching. <laughs> <laughs> 